Hello and welcome to the Transform Ed podcast. I'm Chloe Tomlinson and I will be hosting today's episode where we will be discussing all things to do with the teaching of writing in primary schools. I'm delighted to be joined by Pi Corbett, the founder of the Talk for Writing Approach to Literacy. Hello, Pi. Hello, Chloe. Pi is not only an incredibly well-regarded figure in primary education, but also something of a personal inspiration to me. I was lucky enough to work in a Talk for Writing school for three years and really saw there firsthand how well the Talk for Writing approach works and how it serves to help pupils become enthusiastic and effective writers. Before you start, Pi, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you come to be interested in the world of education? What gave you such a passion for teaching writing? I think probably I became a teacher because my own education was dreadful. And in terms of writing, I have very strong memories of the way in which it was taught. You copied out five lines from the Bible every morning. And then you, on Friday, queued up, the whole school queued up to show the head teacher your writing. I mean, if it wasn't neat enough, he beat you. So I suspect that going back to uh, that early beginning, I just sort of want to make sure that it's all right for children, that their reading and their writing and their education is okay for them, because um, some of that was obviously very damaging to many children. So I come to it from that, that angle, I think. Yeah, brilliant. So hopefully we've come a long way from, uh, from those days. In just sort of very briefly, in a sentence or two, can you give us a summary for anyone who's new to the concept of talk for writing? What is talk for writing? It's really the, the creative and thinking process involved in being a learner and a writer, both in terms of English, but also other subjects. Brilliant. And why, why the talk? Because the talk surrounds the learning. Without talk... It's whether that's talk between teacher and pupil or pupil to pupil or talk inside your head. It's, the, it's what we're doing now. We're co-constructing meaning. We're communicating and learning will not thrive without talk. But it has to be focused talk. Obviously, it's not any old chit chat, but it's it's a number of different types of talk. It's exploratory talk. As I'm doing now, we're exploring ideas together maybe we'll come to new conclusions i don't know but it's exploratory talk but also very focused talk and by that i mean that if you want children to well i can, I'll give you an example i came across a school the other day and they wanted the children to write essays and they were finding it really really hard well the answer is quite simple if you want them to write an essay they have to have a very strong model so we work from strong models so if you want them to write like a historian or write a science investigation, they have to have a strong model so that they can pick up, take the science, they can pick up the, the particular vocabulary, the transferable sentence structures, the text pattern. So, for instance, I'm investigating uh, what happens to my heart rate when I exercise. My hypothesis, what I predict is going to happen is, sorry, my prediction, what I think is going to happen is that, but um, but um, but um. So if they learn a text like that, a model, and get to know it really well, then they can write endless science investigations up that are well-structured with the right sort of language, and all they've got to do is tweak the science bit. 
Okay, brilliant. So you're you're already um already really leading us on to my next question, which is what are the key processes, the key elements of the process of talk for writing? So there, there are really four bits, and possibly when you were doing it, there were only three, but now there are four, and they all start with an I. So the first phase, um, I'll, I'll go through each one simply. The first phase is the model text or text. So that's where we're going to we're going to find a model. Let's say we want to do persuasive writing, persuasive letter in year five. We're going to find a really good model text, piece of great persuasive writing, a letter. And we're going to get to know that really, really well. So we're going to hear it. We're going to say it. And then eventually we're going to read it. But we always start with the hearing it and saying it. We learn it orally. And that's partly because we work so often in schools like St. George's. I mean, my memory is you had a lot of kids on pupil premium. A lot of the children English was a, a new language. And they didn't all come from literary homes. So to get those those language patterns, those literary patterns in their head, uh, and as part of their linguistic competency, they need to hear it and they need to say it. So we'd orally learn a model text using a text map, using actions to make it memorable. And then when they can all say it, and we've explored the vocabulary, etc., then we're going to read it. And that, I think, is like a little, it's a great insight, because if you don't learn the text orally, what happens is when you study the model, some of the children will not be able to read it. But if they know what the words are going to say, then everyone can read it. And that's when we can focus down on that text. We can look at the structure, the language features. So that first phase, imitation, is all about getting to know a model or different models and hearing it, saying it, reading it, discussing it, analysing it. But we might also bring it alive through things like drama. So step one is get to know a model or some models really well. So that's the first bit. You said it starts with an I. What's the I for the first step? So the I for the first step is imitation. Some people call it immersion, but immersion is different. Immersion is bathing children in language, and that's quite right and proper. But imitation is where you help them actually notice the patterns specifically and copy those patterns. Of course, children who've been read to virtually since birth and who read an enormous amount, this phase is less important you still would need a model, but you would probably spend less time in it because they already have those grammatical patterns and text patterns to draw upon. Yeah, I certainly noticed that when I was teaching using talk for writing, you'd have some pupils who really, actually, I think your phrase is shaking hands with the text, yes. um, who just, you know, they they still look at the text, they still familiarise themselves with it, but they don't need to learn it in the same way as some of the pupils who maybe find writing a lot harder and actually one of the things for me which really sort of confirmed to me how wonderful talk for writing is is having taught a pupil with quite extreme SEND ADHD she was also hard of hearing had a lot of learning difficulties and her speech language therapist coming in and asking her to tell a story to go along with a book that had no words and this child was able to tell that story using those you know basic sort of signposts that we have in stories such as openers like once upon a time and then the next day and she was able to retell the story despite quite a lot of need and the speech language therapist said, you know, for her to be able to do that is really quite remarkable. And it is all these years of talk for writing um, that means she's able to do that so successfully. Um, so, yeah, so I fi- think it's interesting that point that that imitation phase plays quite a different role for different children, uh, depending on where they're at. 
yeah. I mean, we've got we've got quite a number of examples like that. Kids who, who really have proper special needs and, and really struggle with many things. But there's something very magical about story. Uh, obviously, the way we do it with the story maps, we're drawing it and maybe using props, but using the actions. It's multi-sensory, so they're more likely to be able to join in. But I do think there is something very special about story itself that seems to be enormously powerful um, for all sorts of children. And it's, it's, it's something that should be used a lot more in special needs teaching um, because so many of those children um, take to it in a way that perhaps other ways, other strategies for learning don't really seem to um, be so effective or have that power. And it's one of the challenges in the classroom, isn't it? Because you're going to have some children who read a lot and, and have already got a big imagination and lots of lots of language and you're right to say we often talk about shaking hands with the text or hugging it who needs to hug it and learn it word for word so they are internalizing those sentence patterns into their linguistic competency and who is familiar with it and has got lots of ideas of their own through their reading etc and is going to say thank you very much you've tuned me in with that but actually i've got a lot a lot a lot extra that i can be drawing on so it shouldn't be a constraint. It should be a scaffold that liberates. Fantastic. Before we move on to the to the next step, yeah. obviously the picture that you gave of your education at the beginning was one of copying out the Bible. Um, and yeah. is there ever any danger that the learning of the text can turn into that sort of rote learning, memorisation that turns children off learning? I would say that in the hands of a poor teacher then yes, that might happen. I mean, it, it has to be done with understanding and it has to be done thoughtfully. It should be a great joy. My experience is most children, if we get it right, absolutely love learning a story or dramatising a non-fiction text and telling it with great gusto and power. So, yeah, if the teacher, for instance, I've seen teachers be very strict about it, it has to be word for word, and they sort of kill it stone cold dead. Some children will start innovating immediately. Some children will quite naturally start adding their own bits in. And I think that's fine uh, and quite exciting. Yeah, I totally agree. And for those newer to the language of taught for writing, by innovating immediately, you, you mean when they retell the story that from the very beginning, they're adding their own bits in, they're making yep. little changes. Um, and it, yep. like you say, it's not learning the text isn't just a case of word for word, absolutely verbatim, sort of reproducing the, the model text they've been given. Um, what about phase two then in, in the top writing process? Okay. So once we, we know our model really, really well, or models, because some of those more competent readers, more confident readers, we might give them two or three models to be looking at in order to get them generalizing and feeding back to the others. So once we go to stage two, now we're going to have a go ourselves, and this is the bit where the teaching kicks in. So this is the bit where we work with the children. There are two very important aspects. One is finding the big underlying pattern, which we often call boxing up. So how is this text organized? So most of us know that instructions, you have an introductory paragraph, which introduces the reader to what we're about to write about. Then we have what you need, what you do, and a rounding off paragraph. So with the children, we call it co-construction. We work out the underlying pattern, and that gives you a sort of boxing up grid. It looks a bit like a flowchart. Uh, and then the other thing that we do with the model text is we look at it and we work out some writing tools. So this would be things like, how do you create suspense? How do you build a character that's believable? 
how do you use the setting to create an atmosphere? So these are our writing little writing techniques that we're going to try out and build up over the years as a repertoire. And then we're going, to, we're going to do a new one. Well, with little ones, we would do it orally, certainly, first of all. So we would draw a new story map and we'd make some simple changes to the text. So if it was the little red hen, we might change it to the little white goose. So a few simple changes. Uh, instead of the gingerbread man, we might have the gingerbread tiger. In essence, it's the same story, but we've made two, three, four, five simple changes and everybody's happy. They can retell their story. And if we taught phonics well, then but certainly by the end of reception and into year one, bit by bit over a number of days, four or five days, they can write a whole story down. And that gives them enormous confidence. And they're making that link from phonics and tricky words into the writing. With older ones, we've got to pitch the shared writing at a much higher level. So that would involve using the boxing up grid in order to plan our ideas, our new ideas, and showing them how to do that. And then again, bit by bit, over a number of days, we'd take that plan and we'd turn it into a text using shared writing. So the teacher would model an opening, let's say on the Monday, and the children write their opening. And then on the Tuesday, you'd give a little bit of feedback, there might be a little bit of editing, I and mean, you're going to model the next bit of the text, they're going to write the next bit. So it's very, very staged, very staggered, very scaffolded bit by bit with the teacher leading the way with the shared writing. And the big skill here is to pitch it at the right level because you, you do get, and you will have seen this in St. George's, it, it, again, it's a big challenge because you're going to have, say, say what year were you in? I think I saw you teach, didn't I? Uh, you did see me teach. I think you saw me teach my NQT year, which was in year two, um, but yeah. then I later moved to year five for a couple of years. Yeah. So in year five in St. George's, you, you may have had a few children who, as we've said, still need to hug closely, but most of them should be moving away from the model. And I think there's a real skill there in pitching the shared writing at the right level. What I would do is, when I started teaching, we used to talk about pitch your teaching in the middle. I think now we talk about pitch your teaching at greater depth and scaffold to bring up the bottom end. In other words, you do the shared writing at a high level in year five, moving away from that model text and really innovating and adapting and changing and drawing on other things. And then you might pull a small group together to give them extra guided support um, so that they can hug a bit more closely, perhaps. Yeah, and I guess as well, when, you're, when, you're, when you are teaching sort of upper key stage two, the fact that they have the model, which they're very familiar with, means that if you're shared writing and if you're modelling through shared writing is pitched really quite ambitiously and together you're co-writing a, a really sort of sophisticated text that's really very far away yes. from the model, between that and the original model, you're kind of giving something for everybody to work from and, and use their example as well. Yes. So I think in a way having the original model does mean that you are free to really be ambitious with your, with your um, shared writing. Yeah, and it's, I mean, something you have to get to know them because as writers, because you do get some children who need to hug the yeah. text, but then go wild. And of course, it all falls apart because they haven't got the sentence structure. And by the same token, you get others who could move away and be more ambitious, but find it easier just to rewrite the model and change three words. And they need to be pulled together and challenged. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. That's uh, very familiar. Okay, great. And then, so which which stage are we on now? Have we done one and two? Because you said there's a, a, new, a new stage since I was using top writing last year. Yeah. So 
the innovation's the second stage. The other thing, of course, at the innovation stage is if there are, particularly you get this in non-fiction, but even occasionally in fiction, if there are certain words which are transferable and we're going to need, so if you were doing discussion writing, whether or not, W-H-E-T-H-E-R, you've got to get that spelling. So at that innovation stage, I'd always focus on common transferable spellings we're going to need and then practicing those grammatical patterns. So you do a little bit of a warm-up on the grammar patterns. So we might be, if it was the opening of discussion writing, we, we'd very quick, you could do it orally. Um, we're discussing whether or not dragons exist in, um, in Battersea. We're discussing whether or not a t new Tesco should be built down the road. We're discussing whether or not rainbows should be straightened. So we just get into the habit of hearing and saying some of those grammatical patterns, which we don't often use in everyday chit-chat, but we're going to need in this writing. So the spelling and the grammar in relation to what we're doing in the writing, I think it's important. Yeah, teaching it in that context is... The grammar patterns you yes. taught uh, a little earlier about the tools that come up in the genre of writing you're looking at. So do the grammar patterns link there to the tools in, in the toolkit or is that something different? Well, it, sometimes they do, but I often see lists of dispiriting grammar on walls where it says sort of use a verb. And you say, well, whenever you write, you use verbs. So what's that doing there? There is a difference between a list of grammar, I think, and what we mean by writing tools. So a writing tool... Writing tools for character would be things like, think of a name for your character that sort of reflects the type of person or, or uh, that you want to portray. So uh, Miss Honey is very well chosen because it suggests what she's like, but Miss Hardy is a slightly tougher character. And then you've got other things about character like, think about how they're feeling and then show that through what they say and what they do. Add in one or two descriptive details that sort of support um, how that character, how you're trying to portray that character. So this, if you like, is writerly knowledge. Sometimes uh, there are grammatical techniques that are useful, but generally it's more to do with writing knowledge. Okay, brilliant. One other thing that I would quite like to clarify before you move on is you obviously talked about boxing up yeah. the text, which is very useful yes. for looking at the structure of it, whatever that structure may be for the genre you're writing. But also, obviously, you've mentioned story maps and they're an incredibly important part of thoughtful writing. What's the relationship between story maps and boxing up? The maps, the maps are, because they're a more visual representation, they're very good for younger children um, because they can sort of see the plot. And they're very good. I mean, some children in year six love doing maps. The boxing up is more abstract, but it does give you the underlying sequence of events. What you can do if you're clever is as they get into, say, year one or year two, the way you draw the story map can be clumped to sort of suggest the four or five main scenes that you've got in a story. Um, so I'd say maps are very good for young children. And then some learners, so the child who had special needs you were talking about, may well be that maps is good for that child. Sometimes they need props, but they move around some children. The boxing up is more abstract so you have to make that move from the very concrete into the abstract somewhere around year two i would have thought but some kids can do it early and some need it later yeah, brilliant what next then we've done imitation innovation that's it so we've, we've the first so the first stage is get to know your model or models the second one is now i'm going to teach you and we'll do it bit by bit by bit and then the third phase is the payoff. We now call this independent application. So this is where independently 
you're going to have a go at teaching everything that we've taught you. Uh, so the child would need to go through planning, which could be a story map or it might be boxing up. And they can chat about that with their partner. They might orally have a go at retelling it. And then they are going to, over a number of days, are going to turn that plan into a piece of writing. So this is the independent bit. Um, it's the payoff from all the teaching. The only th big thing I suppose you've got to think about is they will need some sort of meaty, interesting stimulus or starting point. It's hard to write out of nothing. Yeah. So if it's, not, if it's non-fiction, very often we apply what we've been teaching, we apply it across the curriculum. So if you were doing non-chronological reports about dragons, but you'd lined up, say in Battersea, you were going to a city farm and you were going to be looking at the cows or something, um, you might then apply what you'd learned about reports and from dragons, in other words, what are they, what do they look like, where do you find them, what do they eat, etc. Those sorts of, that sort of structure, you might then apply it to something real through the rest of the curriculum. Yeah, yeah, I think at all stages of writing, it's so important to bear in mind giving children hooks and yes. real experiences or creative yes. experiences which get them really excited about writing. Yes, it's that the hook we often talk about the hook don't we that you're right i think to some extent the quality the richness the depth of the stimulus to some extent determines the writing yeah if if it really grabs them then they're often going to be more committed yeah, yeah. to the run so the quality of the stimulus has often been overlooked i think by people it really does matter and it's also for me i used to love it when i taught because it's the bit where you can be creative yourself yeah cook up a really good idea because objectives look boring and our job as teachers is to bring that alive and make it exciting and memorable for the children so it's where we use our imaginations in the classroom absolutely one of my um one of my personal favorite hooks is when teaching when using your model text kidnapped for, for yep. the couple of years i was in year five we would stage a kidnapping um of one of our tas and the head teacher would come in and say oh have you seen our teaching assistant and then we'd go on a big big hunt around the estate looking for the teaching assistant and finding clues and that was definitely something that just got everybody so excited about the writing and it really it really does show when you see that we've actually sort of moved on now a, a bit more to talking about what makes writing exciting and one thing that does come up quite a lot when we talk about teaching writing and also about teaching in general at the moment is the idea of teaching creativity there are quite a lot of sceptics out there who say you can't teach creativity, you've got to focus on teaching the knowledge and the skills. So I just sort of wondered maybe if you could just tell us what your thoughts on that are. Do you think it's possible to directly teach a sort of creativity that makes writing excellent? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a subtle thing, but you can teach, you can teach the art of writing and the craft of writing, certainly. And you can teach children how to, well, if creativity is the ability to generate fresh and interesting ideas, then you can certainly teach them to do that, yes. So the research into it, there's been some research in America into creativity, and it aligned very much with what I'd been thinking about how when you're being creative, you have to generate ideas. So you have to sort of open up your mind and remove the inner critic. So the ideas float up. I mean, you've also got to have a sort of an inner spotter that says that one there might be worth latching onto. 
So when you're in the process of writing, it has to be, I learned this in my first couple of years teaching. So I would get the children, we'd do all the talk, we'd do brainstorms or whatever, and then they'd be into the writing. And I learned to give a time limit and have absolute silence. So I'd say, well, you, you've got eight minutes. You probably got then, you know, 20 minutes. Or something. So you've got eight minutes. So they had to write in absolute silence. So I think you have to have that fierce, meditative, focused concentration. So they go into the world of the text they're creating. It's that concentration is the other side of the coin to when you read to them. You know, when you read to them, they sort of stare at you, but they're not really looking at you. They're, they're seeing inside their head. That ability that children have who read well, say it's um, a wet playtime, they've got their noses tucked in a book, and there can be chaos going on, and they're absolutely in it. So it's the other side of that coin. To write well, you have to enter imaginatively whatever it is you're doing. So you've got to get that concentration going. And then in the brain, ideas need to pop up to lead the thing forwards. So you have to sort of, without any fear, you have to know how to open your mind and watch for ideas or listen for ideas or allow ideas to appear and then spot the good one. And that's it. That's the inner critic. That's the inner reader, which is saying, that's a good one. Pursue that. I mean, you've got to be able to pursue that. And I think you can teach children to do that. Yes. OK, brilliant. How do you teach that? I used to do a lot through poetry because poetry, poetic writing is sort of it's short burst. It's very rapid. There's, there's a clear focus. And uh, can I read you a poem? I would love you to read me a poem. <laughs> I'm going to read you a poem written by, uh, by a child in my second class, Judith. So we'd, we'd had a discussion about when you're alone and when it's quiet and how you might feel and idea, how ideas pop into your head, etc. And she wrote this in about 10 minutes. And it comes from... The sort of thing I was describing there. So she, Judith wrote, she was seven. She wrote, late one evening in a dark, gloomy room, left all alone, I felt my insides had tumbled down. Fear spread over my body. It was like the world was gone. I felt I was in the coldest, loneliest place in the world. I felt I was in heaven being smothered with angels. The fire seemed to become real in thought. The bars of the fire glowed and seemed to melt and fade deep into my dreams. The television reflects into the glass of the window. Beyond that is a new and dark world. New creatures now appear upon the glassy, splintery window. Late one evening, in a dark, gloomy room, thought and hope end. Wow, a lovely poem. And it, it's, it comes from that, I used to think about it a lot. It comes from the focus, the discipline, get your head down, enter that imaginative world, Listen to the storyteller in your head. Watch those ideas arise. Find them, follow them, pursue them, craft them. It comes from a con conjunction between it, it's sort of the discipline, but also the freedom yeah. to, to choose, the freedom to follow your nose, the freedom to go in the direction that you want. And getting that balance right is quite hard, I think, in teaching. Yeah. Particularly now where we're told what makes a certain standard so everyone's driving towards a certain standard and insisting that children use semicolons and i mean she didn't use a semicolon but it's not a bad piece of writing that it's rather extraordinary isn't it yeah absolutely every class i've ever worked with there are always children who can write at a very high level if they're taught the other thing to say of course is 
that Judith was a great reader. And in the class, we did an enormous amount of ambitious reading. So I used to read to them Ted Hughes and things like that, which probably the poetry I was reading was, some of it was the sort of thing you study at GCSE. But if children only ever experience Captain Underpants or whatever, if I'd only ever read Enid Blyton, I never would have become a great writer because all I can do is write like Enid Blyton. Yeah. Well, it might have made me very, very wealthy, but, <laughs> um, you know, the, so I read Enid Blyton at home. It was a cracking read and you know, reading for pleasure and getting the habit. And that, that was all right. But in school, we studied classics like Black Beauty and um, uh, Long John Silver and all of that, uh, Treasure Island, etc. So I was, I, in school, I was lucky to experience great literature. So I might not have met that at home. Yeah, and I'm sure all teachers see that. The children who read with great appetite are also often the ones who have more ideas for writing, more vocabulary. Um, is such an obvious link as a teacher. Um, the, the reading, it gives you... They reckon, I think it was Stephen Pinker who reckoned that 70 to 80% of vocabulary came out of reading. Yeah. So they got not only the vocabulary, but they had those turns of phrase that... that you only find in books and you can't teach it all. But the other big thing you get, you get the language. The other big thing is you're right. You build the imagination. So a kid like um, Judith, her inner world would be enormous because yeah. she read. So when you read, you're growing your inner world. If you don't read very much. Your inner world is somewhat meager. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the other thing that I think that in my experience is, is important for teaching that sort of creative side of writing and the generation of ideas is also just the opportunity to do it often because I think a lot of the children who don't seem as creative firstly don't have the same sort of capacity for generating ideas but also are a lot more afraid to do it and one of the things I really like about the way that I've taught writing is using some of your games like the game like bananas where you're just doing these kind of really quick fire quite fun games for generating ideas and sometimes when children get lots of practice at doing that in quite a silly fun way it really frees them up to have that sort of bravery that's needed to be creative in a more serious way in their writing it's interesting because you 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 got in the word bravery and serious and i often think it's about it it's a serious game that we're playing you know we have to take the writing seriously because it's to do with who we are as human beings uh, and we want the children to create beautiful things because the opposite of creation is destruction. So it's a yeah. very serious thing. But it does have a gamesy element. And we're going to play a game in a moment. But I want to read you another piece. Okay. This is by Jamie. Now, one of the things that uh, talk writing schools that are effective do well is we do a lot of short burst writing. A bit like that poem I just read you. But this one, this is short burst writing. So it's what you're saying is just a short bit in one go, knocking it off. This one, I took them outside. They had to, we, we had, I was, my first school had very ornate gates. So we drew them and then we came inside and we met, we brainstormed a huge list of all the things that it made us think. And then everybody wrote and Jamie wrote. He wasn't a child normally given to poetic utterance, really. Um, but some lovely ideas in here. The creaking gates swing back like black wings. I mean, just that, the sounds of that. The creaking gates swing back like black wings. Their shadows flicker across the playground like a card player swiftly dealing his deadly hand. A frail pattern reflects like the veins in a leaf or my grand's lace curtains stained by night. Oh, beautiful. Amazing, isn't it? 
Grand yeah, Lace really stained by night. Yeah. And it's that thing of the discipline, the focus, the drawing, um, and then getting on with it, and, but the freedom inside to experiment with the language. And when we get that balance right, through modelling it, through the shared writing, through encouraging them, then children often surprise us with things like that. But the games, the games are great. Shall we play a game? I'd love to play a game. <laughs> okay. So this is the City of Stars, and it's one of our favourite games. So um, you've got to think of three generic place names. By that, I mean don't find the word London. You need the word like city. Okay. You're going to think of city, village, lake, hamlets, um, alleyway, motorway, um, patio, I don't know, church, cathedral, planet, star, ocean, etc. And I'm going to think of three abstract nouns okay okay i've got mine and then we'll put them together so i don't know what your three are okay we'll get an unusual combination we'll probably get words that have never been put together before are you ready okay. what's your first one yeah my first one is office the office of grief my second one is graveyard the graveyard of loathing and my final one is garden. The garden of reluctance. Mine are a bit... The garden of reluctance. Yeah, got... <laughs> it's, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because it does something to the imagination. You can't quite explain why, but it's a combination. But for some reason, so in our culture, gardens are very important, aren't they? Garden of Eden. Yeah. So yeah, the yeah, absolutely. garden has all sorts of connotations. And then... You get this other word, reluctance, which also will have memory attached to it for us. And then you put two ideas together that don't normally come together. And it does something special to the imagination. And everyone can succeed. All kids succeed playing these sorts of games. And, of course, if they have mag... Did you have magpie books? I can't remember. Yeah, I, a magpie actually is something that I, um, I'm really glad has come up because... We did lots of magpieing, and I think magpieing is incredibly useful. It is, and powerful. yeah. And it, the magpie books, for those who, who are not certain about it, it's an idea of sort of they have a little notebook or whatever, and they just get to used to in the course of their lessons jotting down words and phrases and ideas. People have started using it now in other subjects, so it's becoming yeah. more like a learning journal. So when you see a you know a really good talk writing school, you see kids making notes during all lessons, and I love that. Because if we don't capture the learning and fix it in some way, then a lot of it is forgotten. Absolutely. And just for our listeners, so the words and phrases you would magpie, it might be a sort of technical phrase from a geography lesson, yes. uh, or it might be an adjective that you've encountered while you're reading that you think describes something really in, in a very sort of specific and interesting way. And actually, you know, even... As an adult now, I sort of notice when I'm encountering a new topic, yeah. one of the things you're kind of unconsciously doing if you're somebody who is learning effectively is you're noticing that vocabulary that's specific to that topic and you're internalizing it and getting ready to use it yourself when you talk about that. Yeah. So I think the sort of way that Talk for Writing makes that process very explicit yeah. is a really incredibly valuable one for, for learn, learners in general yes. as well as writers. It's I, I think over the next few years we'll see more and more people thinking about right i'm teaching history or science or geography what vocabulary do the children need and what sentence patterns do they need so that you see often you take maths often maths isn't the issue it's often the language that's the issue 
Yeah. Children who don't read very much or come from homes where there isn't much interactive conversation, they are at a, a considerable disadvantage. I mean, we all know about the 30 million word gap when kids enter school. It's a massive thing. So we have mm. to think about, you know, with our year ones and reception children, year two, we've got to be thinking about the language they're going to need in different subject areas. There's one thing, Chloe, we've not talked about, and it's the fourth eye. And I want to just mention it, Brilliant. May, and that's invention. And invention, we decided in the end, was where children have the opportunity to write about anything they want to write about, where they get to write their story or their piece of nonfiction. Because when you look at planning in schools, it's all units and everything is directed by the teacher, really. And whilst we move them towards independence in their writing, where is the moment where they get to write about what they want to write about? It's, it's rather like reading. You're not a reader till you go to the school library and choose your own book um, and begin to develop your own taste as a reader. And you're not really a writer until you have some opportunities to write about things that interest you and your story. Um, I remember doing it years ago in my last class. Uh, I had a boy called Ralph who wrote about beekeeping, and I never knew that his dad was a beekeeper. And he wrote yeah. extensively about beekeeping. It was really interesting. And I had other children who, I mean, they wrote about all sorts of things. They wrote stories, little plays. Some of them would send me messages. Between the units that are taught and directed, we need invention units. And in those invention units, we can set up situations, maybe a wordless picture book or a film clip off the good old literacy shed or a short passage to stimulate them or maybe a bit of drama or a mystery object. We have some sort of starting point. And the children have two or three days and they can make of it what they will. So it's sort of over to them. Where we've done that, we've had some of the best writing and most interesting writing that we've got from children. I think in early years that should be going on all the time through their play. Because yeah, play, yeah, play is really making stories up. That's what they're doing. They're pretending. Yeah, yeah, and you know, often dismissed as being sort of unstructured and not that important. The value in children having time just to be imaginative and play and construct ideas and stories and scenarios is, is so so valuable. What's the point of it all if they don't sometimes get the chance to write what they want to write? What, what, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. The point of reading is so they can go to the library and get some cracking books out and be readers. And if we don't have invention units, um, then I can't see really what the point of it all is. We're just over-controlling things. So it's always about yeah. You need that balance of opportunity. When I was last at St George's, independent application and invention hadn't kind of been separated yet as two distinct yeah. phases, but it makes to totally makes sense that you've done that. I remember doing some invention work on... Well, book day, and I think we were using the book. Is it the book called The Flower? I, I don't remember exactly, but it is true. Sometimes you give children all this freedom, and as a teacher, you can be reluctant to do that because, you know, we can be quite controlling and yes. want children to be, you know, directed by us. But you give them that freedom, and sometimes they do just absolutely blow you away yes. the quality of what they manage to, to produce with it. Um, right, we're almost running out of time now, and I know you've uh, got to set off tonight to run yep. a training course tomorrow. Yep. So really just any final advice um, or wisdom or ways for people to follow up further if they're interested in this uh, sort of taster um, on Talk for Writing. Okay, so we have a website, talkforwriting.com, 
and on there people can find out about conferences trainers we like running training projects or development projects over a couple of years because one-offs don't work the, the reason why the school you were in part of the reason why um, it became uh, and is such a fine school is because they've stuck with for instance talk for writing uh, and the same with phonics with sounds right they've stuck with it for years uh, and what people often do in schools they dip into this and then that and someone goes on a course and they find a new thing and so it's all over the place no one gets a chance to get into anything so what i would say is find out more on the website um, there are lots of case studies and free uh, resources and things but also you can see the main books so you can read up about it and the main books all have dvds so you can hear Often it's me talking at conferences, but also see film clips of people in classroom. And we have the training centres. And the reason for the training centres is I can talk about it till the cows come home, but you have to go and see it, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. What does consistency look like? Because talk writing is all about cumulative learning. So when I walked around the school you were in, you could tell they were learning from year to year to year to year to year. It sort of built up, didn't it? So even though absolutely. they came from poor areas nearly all the kids ended up being able to read and write, do maths, etc., to a pretty good level, really. So the website is the next sort of place if people are interested. And then if you're sort of doing it, find out more and develop your practice. When we look at the standards in the talk writing training centres and compare them to the national standards, despite the training centres being almost all in very poor areas, our standards are far higher than the national average and our rate of progress since 2016 has been about double the rate of um, the progress in the nation in terms of rising standards in other words if you're doing talk writing and your progress isn't great and your standards are modest or low then you need to go back and find out a bit more because it means what you're doing isn't effective and it should be yeah i it's a complex thing isn't it it's not it's not simple no, it, it, I mean, it certainly isn't. But having seen it done really well, yeah. when it is, it, it does work fantastically. It's as a teacher, when you are teaching and you feel, I wish I had been taught yeah. to write like this. I wish I'd been taught writing in this way. Then you know that you're you're teaching in 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 a really fantastic way. Thank you so much, Pi. It's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. This was Transform Ed. Thank you, listeners, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow us on Twitter at transform underscore ed1 or find us on Facebook at transformedu1. That's it for this evening. Goodbye. Bye.